So, the passage for this morning is taken from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And I do encourage you, as you are able, to grab a Bible and to follow along as we spend time in God's Word. Now, as you're grabbing your Bible, as you're turning there, let me give you just a little bit of background information to the passage that we're going to be in and a glimpse as to where we're headed. So the book of Titus uh, is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul. And Titus was a close associate of Paul's and joined him on all of his missionary journeys that you can read about in the book of Acts. Now, their partnership was really meaningful, and Paul trusted Titus deeply. You can see that in books like 2 Corinthians and Galatians. And in the book of Titus, Paul had left Titus on the island of Crete to finish the work of church planting that they had started. Now, Titus, what he was supposed to do was appoint elders in this church and then ensure that the church was taught what to believe and how to live as God's people. But this work was going to be particularly difficult due to the fact that there was a group within this church that began devoting themselves to what the verses say are Jewish myths and that these Jewish myths were turning people away from the true gospel. And this would have been threatening awful, right? It would have threatened to destroy this young church as it was striving to understand its purpose. Now, the church in the United States today, I believe, sits at a very similar crossroads with so many different issues captivating our national conversation and even, at some level, dividing us as a nation. We, as God's people, are at risk of abandoning our purpose by devoting ourselves more to the stories of our culture than to the sound teaching of God's Word. And at the center of this crossroads, I believe, is a very important question for us to wrestle with. What is the purpose of a church? The whole letter of Titus tries to address that question, but our passage this morning, I think, answers that question most clearly. We see in this passage that the church is called by God to be a community that adorns the gospel. And that if we are going to be that community, then we must be a people who are rescued, retrained, and reoriented by God's grace. That is where we're headed this morning in the book of Titus. However, before we dive in, let's go to God's word. Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are able to spend time in your word this morning. Despite technical difficulties, you still desire to communicate your gospel and your truth to us consistently. And for that, we are grateful for this technology and the ability to gather as God's people. We thank you for this portion of your word and that you have preserved it for us and that you have made it available in our own language. Use it now by your spirit to encourage us that we might be your people 
who adorn the gospel in this age, those people who are rescued, retrained, and reoriented by your grace alone. Be with us now, in Jesus' name, amen. So the Apostle Paul says, if we're going to be a community that adorns the gospel as God has called us to be, then we must be people who are rescued by God's grace. Look at verse 11 and even verse 14. Paul begins by reminding the church that the church is to be a community rescued by God's grace. In verse 11 it says, the grace of God has appeared and it has brought with it salvation or deliverance. The word that is translated appeared here in the Greek literally means to give light. However, for those who were living on the island of Crete, those familiar with Greek theater, this word would have meant the moment in a play when a god descended into the chaos of a story and set things right. It's as if Paul right off the bat is saying, stop devoting yourself to the stories and the myths of the world and root yourself instead in the story of God's rescuing grace. In verse 14, Paul continues and he says, Jesus gave himself for us. And that the center and heart of this rescuing story is the essence of God's grace, the story of of Jesus. It's a story about a sacrificial Savior who has come to save his people, to liberate us from our slavery and to cleanse us from our sin. Look at verse 14. It says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. The word redeemed here in, in verse 14 means to buy back from slavery. And the implication is very clear. Without the work of Jesus on your behalf, you are enslaved to your sin. Sin is the breaking of God's law by what you do or you leave undone in your words, in your thoughts, and in your actions. And the Bible says that because of Adam's sin in the garden, all of us are born into slavery to sin. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And yet, through Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection on our behalf, we are liberated from that slavery. And we are set free from the power of sin. But Paul continues, not only are we liberated from our slavery to sin, we are cleansed from our sin. Look back at verse 14. It says, Jesus Christ purified for himself a people for his own possession. Whether we're talking about our sin nature in Adam or our own personal sin, we are stained and defiled in the eyes of God. And sinful people, as the Bible teaches, cannot stand in the presence of a holy God and live. As the book of Hebrews says, everything must be purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And yet Paul is drawing attention to the fact that in Jesus, God's rescuing grace, this happens for God's people. Whether we're talking about our sin nature in Adam or the sin that you yourself are guilty of, Jesus' blood cleanses you from the stains of your sin and removes sin's penalty 
in your life. Now, this language of liberation and cleansing echoes the story from Exodus in the Old Testament. Just as God liberated the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt, Jesus liberates us from our slavery to sin. And just as God cleansed his people in the wilderness so that he could dwell with them, Jesus cleanses us from our sin so that God can dwell with us today by the Holy Spirit. Paul in Romans chapter 15 describing Exodus and the stories of the Old Testament says this, Whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The rescue story of God's grace in Christ is nothing less than a new Exodus, and this is the story that ought to captivate the imagination of God's people. But if you are not someone that considers yourself a Christian and you are tuning in, the truth of this story is really important for you to wrestle with because it points to the fact that no matter how ethical your behavior is or how right your politics seem to be, you are not a good person in the eyes of God. You are a sinner. You stand rightfully under God's judgment and his wrath and you need to be rescued more than anything else. And God's word says clearly that when you turn and put your hope and your trust in Christ alone, you are liberated and cleansed from your sin. And I pray that today you would turn to Jesus and you would be rescued by God's grace. But for those of us who are already in Christ, who call Grace Church home, is God's rescuing grace functioning as your story? Or have the stories of the news or social media or the details of our daily lives captivated your imagination? It's not that these aspects of life do not matter to God. Later in this passage, we are going to see that they definitely do. However, Paul begins by saying, if we are going to be a community that actually adorns the gospel, then we must first and foremost be people who have been rescued by God's grace, those who are liberated from our slavery to sin and cleansed of our stains. But how is that supposed to matter in daily life, you might be asking. Listen, I'm with you. Truthfully, the news and social media and the affairs of daily life feel far more real day to day than God's rescuing grace. And this is why Paul continues in this passage and says, we also need to be people who are retrained by God's grace. Look in verse 12. Paul says that God's grace not only rescues us, but trains us in a new kind of life. It says he's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The word that is translated training in this passage is the Greek word paideia. And I love this word paideia because it literally means the education of children but in the first century, it would have alluded to so much more. It would have meant the training of a whole person to live well as a citizen in a kingdom. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that for the Christian, being retrained by God's grace is to learn how to live all of your life 
in the way of Christ's kingdom. But do not miss this point. Being retrained by God's grace is not first and foremost about what you do, but about the type of person that you are. It's not so much about your actions, it's about your character. It means learning to say no to your sinful flesh and to say yes to God's spirit. Look back in verse 12. Paul says that God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Right? The word ungodliness means to live in such a way that you are ignoring or rejecting God as your creator and as your king. And in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul describes the type of life that ungodliness is. It says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And later, Paul will say that ungodliness always leads you to the worship of other gods and to all kinds of sin. And that's what he means when he says worldly passions or sinful appetites and desires. A fuller description of these you can find in Galatians 5, and I'll read just a few of them. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so the first lesson that God's grace leads us in is to turn our lives to say no to the flesh and instead to say yes to the Spirit. Back in verse 12 in Titus, it says that those who are being retrained by God's grace learn to live lives that are self-controlled, upright and godly in this present age. We just flip it on its head, right? Godliness is actually acknowledging God in the details of your life. In one sense, this is true because of God's rescue in your life, that you are made holy because of the work of Christ. And in another sense, it means that we are being led and retrained in every step of our life, to acknowledge our need of God in every single detail. This is what it means to be led by the Spirit. To say yes to the Spirit and no to our flesh. And if we go back to Galatians, the Apostle Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Not so much about what you do, but about what type of person you are because you are saying yes to the Spirit. Perhaps the best description of this retraining process was coined by Martin Luther. In the 95 Theses that he nailed to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, that sparked the Reformation, of which we are the sons and daughters, right? He said this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent in Matthew 4, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance 
and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith in our personal and our corporate worship. Repentance and faith in our marriages and in our singleness. Our families and our friendships. Repentance and faith in your work or in your retirement. Repentance and faith in your politics or in your engagement on social media. All of life redefined by saying no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit. It's as if what John Owen said rings so true. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. It is by learning to say no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit that we are led to the final portion of this passage. We must be people who are totally reoriented by God's grace. Look at verses 13 and 14. Those who are rescued by God's grace, those who are being retrained by God's grace are also those who are waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, those who have been purified for himself to be his own possession in verse 14, who are zealous for good works. He says that those who are adorning the gospel are those whose hopes and priorities are radically reoriented by God's grace. Look at verse 13. In verse 13, Paul says that those who are learning to say yes to the Spirit are also waiting for our blessed hope. And he connects that hope to the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As Jesus' first coming meant our rescue, his second coming has become our hope. And the word translated appearing here is exactly the same that he said at the beginning of the passage. Jesus' second coming, in a sense, is the epiphany of all of history, right? The moment when Christ himself will descend one final time into the chaos of history and set things right forever. This is the hope that we see in Revelation chapter 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or any pain. And as he continues, he says, I am seated on the throne. Behold, I am making all all things new. As the Apostle Peter says, the life of a Christian now looks to the kingdom of Christ as a citizen, but also as a sojourner, as a pilgrim, and as an exile today. This is what we see Paul pointing to in verse 14. Not only are our hopes reoriented to the future of Christ's kingdom in our daily lives, but it reorients our priorities. Look in verse 14 again. He's purified for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's as if C.S. Lewis observed, if you read history, you will find out that the Christians who did the most for the present world were those precisely who thought most of the next. Or as Rodney Stark in his book For the Glory of God points out, it is not hyperbole to say that hospitals, adoption agencies, 
the universities, modern science, abolition, and civil rights are all Christian ideas. They come from people whose hopes and priorities were radically reoriented by God's grace. How much more the modern missions movement. On January 8, 1956, a 28-year-old American missionary by the name of Jim Elliott and four of his partners were martyred by the Akua people deep in the jungles of Ecuador. After graduating from Wheaton College in 1949, Jim had heard about the Akua people from a former missionary to Ecuador. And even though Jim was told by this missionary that this tribe was fierce and completely hostile to outsiders in every regard, Jim felt and sensed a call from God to take the gospel to them, and he started to make plans to that end. After a few years of preparation, Jim and his partners made contact with the Akua people only to be immediately ambushed and speared to death in an area that they called Palm Beach. And on January 13th of that same year, Jim's wife Elizabeth and their young daughter Valerie received the news of his tragic death. And yet in the wake of this tragedy, God moved in the heart of Elizabeth to continue to pursue the Akua people with the gospel. And she did. And as a result, God turned many in that tribe to Christ. And the story of the Elliot's hope, sacrifice, and priorities have inspired thousands to follow the Lord to the mission field and reach countless people, including many unreached people groups, with the gospel. And when we try to make sense of the tragedy of this story, I think Jim Elliott's words in his journal help us do that the best. Because before all of this happened, on October 28, 1949, Jim wrote in his journal, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. We might admire and be inspired by the Eliot story. We might marvel at the achievements of Christians in the past. And what I love about this passage in Titus is that Paul doesn't have these huge accomplishments in mind, though they are clearly possible. Look back in Titus 2 to verse 4 and 5. Here is the outworking of these new hopes and new priorities. It simply says this, Older women are to teach what is good, and so train the young women. And in verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now there's a lot that we would need to unpack in verses 1 through 10, and especially verses 4 and 5, which we don't have time to do right now. But don't miss the point of what Paul is saying. Those whose hopes and priorities have been reoriented by God's grace, simply take an interest in other people and seek their good. And the reason that they do this, hear this, is that this is the essence of adorning the gospel, giving the details of your life for the sake 
of someone else. Oftentimes, this will look like just getting coffee with a younger Christian to encourage them, or awkwardly sharing the gospel with a coworker or a neighbor, or it will look like the civil rights movement, or universities, or a number of unbelievable accomplishments in the name of God. And yet, whatever the expression might be, those priorities that are reoriented by God's grace have eternal significance and change the world both now and into eternity. Look with hope to the coming of Christ and passionately prioritize the good of others. And so, Grace Church, as we stand at this crossroads, let us not abandon our purpose as God's people. Let us not devote ourselves more to the stories of our culture than to the gospel. And instead, let us be those who are rescued by God's grace, who are retrained by God's grace and reoriented by God's grace. So that when we approach the pressures and the realities of our daily lives and this cultural moment in all of its flavors, that we as Grace Church might be, by God's grace, a community that adorns the gospel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks and praise for your love, your mercy, and your grace toward us in Christ. We thank you that it is a whole life experience to be saved by the work of your Son. I pray for your people now and us in America that we would not be wooed or distracted by the stories of the world around us, but that we would be captivated by the story of your grace. That we'd be retrained by that grace, by your Spirit. That we would say no to the sinful hungers that we have in our flesh and to say yes to the movement of your Spirit. And that because of that retraining, we would be reoriented by the hope that we have in your second coming. And that we would reprioritize our life to seek your kingdom. Lord Jesus, come soon, we pray. And equip us now to be faithful in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this sermon. We hope and we pray that it was a blessing in your life. If you have more questions about what you have heard, I ask that you would please reach out to the church office by either emailing office at gracechurchpca.com or mark at gracechurchpca.com, who is our senior pastor. Thanks so much. Have a blessed day.